So I, I let's let's pray that you know that God would be with us and help us to to kind of overcome the the blustery day. To quote Winnie the Pooh. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning and help us to help us to come into your presence, Lord. Let I pray that you would just just take all the all the yuckiness, all the all the um, physical uncomfort and and even the, the distractions from the week or, or worries of our hearts and just put them away and help us to hear um, hear from you, Lord. I pray that you would be with me as I as I uh, share the message this morning as I talk about Paul's words. I pray that you would uh, uh, keep me true to the mark and, and um, I pray that you would help me to, to speak words that, that are just rooted in, in, in your word, not in my thoughts. In Christ's name, amen. Um, so I have this bad habit. I, I have a very short attention span. I, I know some of you guys are maybe surprised by that. Um, but it, it's very difficult for me to pay attention to things for long periods of time. And, and this bad habit, like I, I'm also very undisciplined. Again, shock. Um, but, but when like we go places and Jess and I are driving and we need to get directions, I'll ask for directions with Jess standing there because Jess doesn't like to ask for directions because she doesn't like talking to strangers. Um, I just wouldn't like the country or something. I don't know. Um, but I'll, I'll ask for directions, and they'll start giving us directions as to where to go, and, and I'll try to pay attention, but about three seconds in, I'll, I'll notice something shiny or, or what have you, and I'll kind of glaze over, and I'll just think, I really hope Jess is paying attention. <laughs> And I'll, I'll kind of, you got that, honey? You, got, you know, are you set? And I, I have trouble with, with details. You know what I mean? Anybody else have trouble with details? It is, wow. <laughs> Shouldn't you hold up both hands, Jeremy? I, <laughs> um, and every once in a while, this gets me in trouble. Like, I, I, years ago, we used to take kids um, from, from the home where I worked at, the children's home, these, these residents. We would take them to Minnesota for, for camping and fishing, and we'd be out in the wilderness for a week, and and uh, they always had us do, like, like a state-mandated orientation before you went into the park. And they, it was like an hour long. It was absurd. It took me longer to, to hear the orientation than it did to, to get into the canoe and go. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. And you had to sit there. And, and usually it's at the end of driving for 12 or 14 or 16 hours or whatever. And, and, and you just don't want to do it. You want to leave. And, and they make you sit there. And they have an orientation video that was... I, I'm sure they showed them when I was in elementary school because I had trouble paying attention to them. They were dull, and, and they, they had all these rules about not dumping your fish in the water next to the, next to the campsite and not burning your paper trash. And I mean, just on and on and on. And, and the odd product of not paying attention during this, this lecture was that I, I ended up breaking a lot of those rules when the time came. Um, and and one, of the, one of the sections I remember I, I, I had... You know, year after year after year, it was the same thing over and over again. And, and they had the section about the bear bag. You, you know what the bear bag is for? It's, it's to keep bears from coming into your camp and eating your food, right? The assumption is if the bear walks into the camp, you want him to leave and not find anything to eat. And, and so what we started doing, we, one of the kids that, that I met, like out there, he was a teenager, he wasn't a kid, you know. Um, he said, well, you know, the bear bag works, but you can actually put your bear bag underneath a canoe and pile your pots and pans up and the bear will wake you up when he when he tips the canoe over to get at your food and you can chase him off. Thought, That's a great idea. <laughs> and <laughs> and I mean has anybody ever hung a bag in a tree? 
Oh, don't judge. It's not easy. <laughs> and so we would do this. And, and it was just a pain in the neck to hang the bag. And so we put the canoe up and we did the pots and pans. And, and it worked great for years, mainly because bears never showed up. <laughs> and, then, and then the one time I didn't listen to the instructions, it was the last year we went, the one time we didn't listen to the instructions and a bear did show up, we had a problem, right? And a big part of that problem is that once the bear got a little bit of food in him, he didn't want to leave. Like, and so he kept coming back, and, and he kept coming back, and like, like he sat there outside of our camp almost all night, and it was miserable. And, and um, actually, we hung the bag up in the tree at that point. We decided it was a good idea. And then we all went to sleep, and he climbed the tree and strapped the rope until it broke and proved that bear bags don't work. But, <laughs> so I wasn't. But because I wasn't paying attention, because like the details were just a, a bit uninteresting to me, um, and I, I found stuff that was more interesting to pay attention to. I, I got lost in it, and, and actually we had a we had a, a pet we almost got to bring home. Um, Paul, at this point in the letter to the Colossians, like I, I last week we started Colossians, but Paul transitions into this detail stuff, right? And sometimes the detail stuff seems really nitpicky. You start listening to it, and you're like okay, really, do I need to know this? Do I need to know this? Do I need to know this? And actually, that's where the Colossians were. This is the background of this. Paul did not plant this church, but he was asked by the fellow who did plant it to write them a letter because they were getting lost on the details, right? They had all of these details about the gospel, about who Jesus was, about what God calls us to do. They had all of these great bits of information, and they had started to kind of drift away from it. And they had started saying, well, you know what? Like, the philosophy that the Greeks are coming up with is pretty awesome right now. What if we just mix it in, right? Or, you know, these mystery religions that are popular right now, there were quite a few mystery religions at the time, and eventually a lot of them grew up into a faith called Gnosticism, but we're not going to get into that today. Um, but they did some cool stuff, and they were kind of exciting. And so what if we take some of what they believe and start mixing it in because it's just a little more interesting than what we're doing, right? And eventually they hit a point where, they hadn't paid attention to the directions, and they had started to get a little lost, right? Last week, we, we, when we talked about Paul's opening to the letter, Paul was very gently nudging these guys back in the right direction, right? He's kind of he's pushing them back on course, and he does it kind of with a spoonful of sugar, right? You know a spoonful of sugar, what does it do? Yeah, and Paul is, Paul is giving out medicine at this point, but it's... It's, it's medicine that he's doing very gently, which is cool for Paul because sometimes when Paul isn't gentle, like, he says some pretty, pretty mean things. Like, Paul can be pretty hard, but he's trying to get these guys to turn, right? And he's trying to turn them with a, with a little bit of sugar on the way. And so the first section of the letter is very gentle. And now instead of correcting, immediately correcting, he goes back to the directions they had. This is a reminder, okay? And Paul gives us... Um, a very concise, very complete, very exact understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, right? Of the, the background framework of who Jesus is, okay? And, and why is this important? Well, this is important because if you're going to do it, do it right. Does that make sense? Like, how many of y'all love getting up early in the morning? We don't have early services. I'm sorry. How many of y'all love getting up and, and using your day off to, to come and sit here? I, I actually enjoy this. Um, if you're doing it wrong, it's a waste of time. Does that make sense? 
If you're doing the giving thing wrong, it's a waste of time. If you're doing this as a part of earning your way to heaven, as a part of doing this, as a part of doing that, it becomes a waste of time. And not only that, sometimes you can hurt people along the way, right? Has anybody ever met a Christian person who clearly had it wrong and was just damaging everyone they came near? Anybody been that person? Um, (laughs) Don't point. Um, And so, Paul, like, this is an important bit because it, it gives us what it's all about. And, and so, like, we have the first section here, and Paul transitions from his, his opening thing, and he actually does something kind of cool, which we'll get to in a second. The transition line is 13 to 14. This is in Colossians. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. It'll be on the screen, too. Um, he says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, um, for he is referring to God, right? So God, like God, um, takes us from this, like, domain of darkness. Now, the phrase here is awkward because Greek, the way it should be, it should be dominion and, like, it should refer to it as slavery to darkness, right? He says, listen, God has taken you from slavery to darkness, not just like the sun went down, it's dark outside, right? But darkness is in, like, our sin. And I'm betting there are at least one or two people who are here, who've been in places in their life where you can look back and say, my sin has tricked me, or I have followed my sin willingly into some pretty horrible places, right? Any of y'all ever, like, wake up in the morning and realize, man, I am lost. How on earth did I get here? You know, or you get done doing something and you look back and you think, why did I do that? <laughs> you know, there must that's not me. Well, it, it's the sin that lives inside of all of us, and we're all slave to it, Right? We can try really, really, really hard and hold it together in little bits, right? But ultimately, the sin's going to win. It's like um, if I went out tomorrow to run a marathon, right? Um, Or Jeremy and I went out to run a marathon. How far can you run, Jeremy? Anybody believe he can run a mile? (laughs) Now, how far is a marathon? 26.2, 26.2 miles. Could you do it? If I were to enter Jeremy into the New York Marathon, it's a world-class race, and Jeremy were to go out there and he were to try really, really hard, and he really believed in himself, could he win? No. Could he finish without dying? Maybe not even that, right? Like, (laughs) the reality is that trying really hard if you can't do it don't count, right? Because it's not going to get you across the finish line. And sin affects us the same way. When it talks about being slavery to the darkness, to the sin in our life, the reality is you cannot try hard enough to win this race, okay? So if you meet somebody who, like, like, you know, carries themselves as though they've never screwed up, that person is not telling you the truth. Everybody with me? None of us, none of us, none of us can do that. None of us can bring themselves into the light because we're all slaves to our sin. You give me two choices, I'm going to do the the wrong thing nine out of ten times. And that tenth time, I'm doing it for the wrong reason. You with me? (laughs) On my own. Because sin enslaves all of us. Um, And so God has, on his own accord, transferred us from one kingdom to the other. He pulls us out of the darkness that we sit in, um, and he brings us into his kingdom. 
Whenever we hear kingdom in the Bible, it refers to like his dominion or the realm of his like influence. It's the place you want to be, right? Um, from who are, excuse me, the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. Anybody ever redeem a coupon? Right? You go to the ice cream shop with, with a coupon that says free ice cream, you redeem it by getting your ice cream, right? Redemption here is a term that, that means paid for, right? Um, redeem means like ransomed or purchased. And so like the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, meaning like our sins are forgiven because we're bought out of it by Jesus. Um, we, Paul moves on, and he does a really cool thing here. For whatever reason, Paul wrote a song. Like, <laughs> the rest of this, like, the next six verses are a song. Um, how do we know? Well, there are a handful of things. It's um, the, the form it's written in, um, and then a part of it is, like, the way it opens. He shouldn't actually be he. Um, it should be, uh, hold on, let me find the right word here so I don't say it wrong. Um, it's a reflexive pronoun. It should be who, right? But it makes sense in Greek. It doesn't make sense in English, so it's translated he. Everybody with me? So he, meaning Jesus, is the, or the by the way, the reflexive pronoun is a common way to start a lyric for a, a song or a first line for a song. And so, like, that's part of how we know it's a song. It's also metered, and there's some rhyming involved, but we're not going to get into that. Um, he is the image of the invisible God. So Paul transitions, and he starts telling us, who Jesus is, right? Um, because we talked about this last week, right? Jesus isn't Build-A-Bear. I can't paste together whatever I want and say that's Jesus and have it actually be him, right? If, I, if, I, if my wife were to walk around with a picture of, um, I don't know, who's handsome? I, I, uh, <laughs> not you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> You win, Craig. You <laughs> um, if my wife were to walk around with a picture of Brad Pitt and say, this is my husband, and he's the best husband ever. He always does the chores, and he never raises his voice, and he never oversleeps, and he meets me with breakfast in bed every day, and he rubs my feet. She can say all that. Is it true? No. It's <laughs> it is not who I am, right? And so she can say she believes that's who I am, and that's the relationship she has. But she didn't have a relationship with that person because he doesn't exist, right? Like, the reality is, we can say, well, who is this Jesus person? If we make it up, it ain't him, right? We can sit and ignore the instructions. If we don't know who Jesus is, we don't know who Jesus is. So when Paul starts describing who Jesus is, this is important. First off, he says, he is the image of the invisible God. This is a really hard phrase. Why? Because has anybody ever seen a picture of nothing? Right? Like, if God is invisible, if you can't see him, how are you going to have an image of him? Well, what we're seeing here is what Paul is doing. The image of the invisible God means that Jesus is the manifestation, meaning he's like, like the picture or like the showing up of all of God's qualities. We find God's love, right? We find God's mercy. We find God's, like, power because Jesus, like, shows up and heals people. He can tell storms to stop, right? Like if Jesus was here, he could step outside and say, hey, wind, cut it out. We're not done with the service. And it would stop, right? Like Jesus had like God's power and authority behind him. And in that we see an image of who God is, right? Like, like we can say, well, I can't see the wind, but I know it's there. How do I know it's there? Well, because I'm cold. 
My house is, you know, shaking. You know, the grill just blew into the neighbor's yard. Like, we know the wind is there because it has qualities we can see. In the same way, Jesus brings God's qualities to the forefront. Um, he is the image, meaning like he is, he, he is a representation. He is the exact showing of God, you know, God's qualities. So we know who he is. You know, we know who God is based on the fact that Jesus brings it all to the forefront. He goes on. He says, listen, so we see who God is. He is revealed, like, or, or incarnated. We see everything who God is through Jesus, um, who is the firstborn of all creation. Now, here's where this gets tricky. There are folks along the, along, you know, along the way, Christianity is, you know, 2,000 years old, right, who will read this firstborn of creation, and the instant response is, well, that's because Jesus was made, right? God made Jesus first. That's actually not what that means. Firstborn, as Paul uses it, and as the Gospels use it, as the New Testament uses it, as the Old Testament uses it, is primarily a reference to authority, right? The oldest child is in charge. Um, it's a reference to ownership. If um, one day Titus is going to be old enough to realize that his sister drags him around, right? And that, that when he has a toy that she wants, who has the toy in the end? She does. Why? Because she's bigger and she's stronger and she can, right? She has a degree of authority that comes with the law of nature, right? Titus can't do anything about that. He's going to get bigger than her pretty quick, but even then it may not help because she's wily, I know. Um, in the end, if she does something I don't like, who wins? Me, right? Unless she wears me down, but that's a whole other story. Um, when it talks about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation, firstborn is a reference to authority and ownership. Everywhere in the Bible we see this. We see this as, as um, like kind of a recurring thing. I actually may have a verse as an example of this. An example, Psalm 89, 27. Um, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Um, this is a reference to King David, right? Because the psalm is actually about King David. Is it saying that David is suddenly going to become the firstborn created? No. It actually is a reference to the fact that David is going to be the top of the kingly lineage. So like of all of Israel's kings, and he wasn't the first one, right? He was the second one. God says of David, he is the firstborn, meaning he's the most important. Everything comes out from him. He has ownership and direction of, like, firstborn is a reference to, I have to go back to that verse because we're not done yet. Um, firstborn is actually a reference to um, authority. And so what do we know about Jesus so far? First off, he is a manifestation of everything we can know about God. Um, and secondly, he is um, he's preeminent, like he is in charge. Everything belongs to him. He has authority over everything because the firstborn in the ancient world just did. And that's how they would describe it. For by him, all things were created. What does that mean? Well, everything in the whole world, right? The world itself. When we talk about the creation, seven days, right? Let there be light all the way to he rested. Um, by him, all of that took place. What does that mean? It means he was the agent through which it happened. Now, if I were to hire a real estate agent, right? That real estate agent is going to go and tell people about my house, right? If I'm selling a house, what's the real estate agent going to do? It's going to find sellers, right? If I have a real estate agent and I'm still the one out there doing the advertising, there's a problem, right? 
Um, the real estate agent is also going to line up the paperwork and make sure all the signatures get where they're supposed to be and make sure all of the filing with the state is done and all the taxes are taken care of. That's what an agent does, right? Um, Jesus is the agent through which the world was created, meaning that, like, God said, this is what we're going to have, and Jesus created. Um, when we see that Jesus is, is the word of God, part of that is because, like, when you say a word, right, that word comes out of you and it becomes something that's out there, right? Jesus is God incarnate. He is the means through which God, like, creates. He is the means through which he redeems. Um, it's kind of interesting, actually. That's going to come back here. But be aware, like, so Jesus is firstborn, meaning, like, he's got authority, and he created at God's behest, right? Like, God, like, my agent doesn't do anything I don't want, want him to, right? In theory, he responds to my direction. And so the agent acts. And so Jesus, on God's direction, he acts and creates, both in the heavens and on the earth, meaning, like, everything that ever is and ever was, um, Jesus created it. Whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, meaning everything that has any sway or influence in this world, has its creative origin in Jesus. Um, God directed, Jesus created. Everybody with me? By the way, um, if you read Hebrews, uh, I believe it's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it actually talks about Jesus creating all things. It's not only found here. It's something we find throughout the scriptures, right? Like this idea that Jesus is the creative agent. Um, all things have been created through him and for him, meaning Jesus created all things and all things exist for his purpose. Now, here's where this is going to come, come around again. The old way, right? Well, we'll get to the next verse and we'll get into that. Uh, 17 through 18a. He is before all things and in him... All things hold together, meaning everything is subject to him, right? He's at the forefront, and everything exists because he makes it exist. He holds it together, right? We are here because he sustains it. If he backs up and lets go, what happens? It's all gone, right? We exist for, like, like at his energy and in response to his, like, like enabling. Um, if I were to spin a plate on a stick, right, and I'm holding the stick, as long as I'm holding the stick, that plate's there, right, and every once in a while, I've got to hit the plate again to keep it spinning, you know what I'm talking about, the moment I let go of the stick or stop spinning the plate, what happens, broken dishes, right, <laughs> that's kind of the idea here, everything that exists, like Jesus put it there, and Jesus keeps it in motion, like, like, by the very act of God, like, through God's authority, he does this, and so, like, Authority, etc. He is also head of the body, the church. Now, head here, we think ahead because we have a very different understanding, right? The head is where the brain is, right? And then you get that central nervous system, the spine and everything else that directs everything. And so we think ahead, and what we think of is um, it's like the driver's seat, right? And, and this is often misinterpreted by modern readers because ancient readers had no idea about the brain's purpose, Right? They had no idea that the brain was like where, you know, all the information gets stored. They had no idea the, the, the value of the brain. They actually figured it was a little lower in this area, right, in the chest, in the heart, in the belly, which results in some interesting, anyway. Um, 
And so he says he is the head of the body of the church. What's he talking about? What he's talking about is the idea that the church comes forth from him. It is the initial example of everything that is to be, right? So when you and you and you and you and you, when all of us gather together as the body of Christ and we try to live out the church in the world, what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be following that original example, right? Jesus is the first copy of what we're supposed to be. And so, like, when my wife makes me mad, not that that happens often because she's wonderful and perfect, I should forgive her because Jesus teaches that I should forgive, right? Like, and Jesus forgave even when people, like, were crucifying him. And she has never crucified me. It just felt that way sometimes. She's not in here, so I can say that. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> And so Jesus is the head of the church, meaning like the whole church is a copy of him. And we're supposed to pay attention to this because, first off, he has authority. And secondly, the church is like following the prototype. Moving right along, 18b through 20. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, or from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. This is an odd phrase. Now, check this out. This is where it gets really exciting. Um, Adam, everybody's heard of Adam, was the first man that God created. Adam fell. He fell into sin. He and his wife, they disobeyed God. They fell into sin. And it's their fault. We are all stuck, right? We're all slaves to that kingdom of darkness. That's that's because of them. It's just run right through history. And we all live with that, like, consequences of that, that sin, right? And so um, what we find is Jesus created the world, and the world started spinning off and getting in trouble, and it's become messed up. God sends Jesus to set it right, right, to fix it. Um, And he is the beginning of the new world. So, like, the Jews believed, and, and I believe, and actually Christianity teaches, that all people will rise again, right? You, me, everyone you ever knew, right? Everybody who dies will come back. Like, like the dead will one day be resurrected. We're all eternal beings, whether we like it or not. And so we had a beginning, but we won't end. Um, and Jesus is the first of the resurrected, meaning like he is the first one. He is proof that this is true. Why? Because he came back. You might say, well, Lazarus came back to life. No, Lazarus was actually resuscitated, meaning he was dead. He came back to life. And what happened? He died again. <laughs> Um, the scriptures have several examples, but Jesus is the only example of proper resurrection, meaning he came back and Jesus never died and never will. Um, and so Jesus stands at the forefront of this new creation that is the kingdom because he's the first of the resurrected. And all of us will be there. All of us will one day experience this resurrection. And he is first, again, the example in the beginning of the church. Um, so that he himself will come to have a first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Um, we're going to hit pause there. For it was the Father's pleasure to have all the fullness dwell in him. What that's talking about is the fullness that it's referring to is him. Right? If I walk into, my, into a room, the fullness of me is in the room. Everybody get that? I stand halfway out of the room, only half of me is in the room. Um, The fullness of God dwells in Christ, meaning that Jesus himself 
is God. He is fully God. Like, he's not just a little bit God. There are some folks who teach that, like, well, God just sort of stuck his finger down there and sort of controlled him as he went. He is God. The fullness of God is contained in this tiny, tiny little container that is a person. And so Jesus is fully God. Now, some of the mystery religions taught that Jesus was sort of like this this person that had a divine spark and that was it. But that's not what the scriptures teach us. That's not what Paul is teaching us. He says the fullness of God was in him at God's good pleasure, meaning that he was fully God and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. What's he talking about? Um, God's plan for this redemption, for your resurrection and mine, is accomplished through Jesus dying for us right? You cannot work hard enough to earn your salvation. If I threw a rock at Adam right now, right? Not that I'm going to, I don't have a rock with me. Um, If I threw a rock at Adam, there's nothing I can do to unthrow that rock once it's out of my hand, right? I got about a second before it actually hits him and it probably wouldn't hit him. It'd probably hit Marlene. Um, (laughs) But I just had to bring your name up. Um, (laughs) but, But the moment that rock leaves my hand, it's over right? I ain't calling it back. Um, as much as like maybe the 49ers would want to call a ball back after it's been thrown into an interception in the end zone. I'm just saying, um, <laughs> hey Matt, I've missed you. <laughs> you can't call that back once the bad pass has been thrown and the Super Bowl has been thrown away. Um, <laughs> I'm going to let that sink in. Like you can't call it back. Once the sin is committed, like it's gone, Right? And so my sin, your sin, the, the garbage we've done is out there. And, like, if the rules are the rules, somebody's got to pay when the rules are broken, right? If Abby does something she's not supposed to do, we were at the doctor's office the other day, and the doctor brought her a sucker, and she got the sucker, and the first thing that she did, I said, honey, say thank you. And she said, can I have another one? I said, no, 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 say thank you. Can I have another one? And I said, honey, you need to say thank you. She says, I want another sucker. And I said, you can't have another sucker. And what did she do? Screamed and kicked and (laughs) had a fit, right? Now, our rule is that there are consequences that come with that, right? But sitting in front of a doctor, I can't spank the kid because the doctor called the police. Um, (laughs) But, but it bothers me when, when she breaks a rule and I don't enforce it because the moment we stop enforcing the rules, they don't exist anymore, right? When we sin, when I throw the rock at Adam and I sin, somebody's got to pay for it. God's solution is to take Jesus, like, like himself, fully him, into the world, and then when Jesus is hung on the cross, he literally becomes our sin. So the nastiest, miserable garbage I do and, and Michael does, and Mark does, and, and Jim does, and, and not Marlene, she's perfect. Um, <laughs> and Marlene does. Like the nastiest garbage we do, when God looked at Jesus on the cross, that's what he saw. Like his own son, he loved more than anything, literally a part of him. And what he saw was my junk and your junk. And so through the blood that he shed, like through that punishment paid out, we're bought back from our sin. I may have been a slave, but I'm bought back from my slavery. Um, 
I can't unthrow the football. I can't unthrow the rock. But I can be forgiven. I can be bought back through Christ. It's the most comforting thing you can have in the world, to be honest with you. As a guy who's like agonized over the garbage I've done, like knowing that Jesus paid for it and all I have to do is have faith, like it's more comforting than anything. It's more comforting than thinking I can pay or work or beg my way into heaven. I don't want that. I want forgiveness and grace. Um, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, even though at one point you were God's enemy, right? And, and mind you, like if you come into my house and you destroy my carpets and you hit my kids and you beat my dog and you do all of this stuff, I'm looking at you college guys, um, <laughs> we're having a party and I just don't destroy my carpet. Um, you're not my friend at that point, are you? We're in God's world and we rebel and we sin and we do awful things to each other. Like, we live in this world where through, like, like we're filled with sin and we are alienated and hostile to God in our minds, our thoughts, our deeds, everything. And through Jesus dying for us, God brings us back to present us to him holy. What does holy mean? Um, holy means set apart for a purpose. My wife is holy. Right in our marriage, nobody else gets to touch her. Right, nobody else gets to kiss her. Nobody gets to cuddle with her. The kids maybe. I don't really. Hey, cut it out. The <laughs> the kids maybe, but even then, I'm a little jealous of them sometimes. Like she is, she is my wife. Right, I don't share. Um, because she's set apart for me. That's what holy means. Set apart for a purpose. We are like set apart for God, made holy and and different. For his good pleasure, like so that we can be brought to him clean and set apart and holy and good. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. The big if there, right? So here's the faith. Here's what you believe. You're redeemed in Christ. If you stick with it, meaning if you follow the right map, right? If you follow the path, because last week we talked about these guys are getting lost. And he's reminding them. He's like, this is the truth. If you stick with the truth. You're all right. And so Paul, like, there's the medicine, right? If. But that means all of us, right? Like, this applies universally. We have to stick with this. We have to have hope in it. Um, We have to be and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made minister, meaning we got to stick with it. We can't pick our own path. If Jesus came and shed his blood for us, if God sent his only son to redeem you, and you look and say, I want my own path. I don't want to believe God is this way. I want the Build-A-Bear God or the Salad Bar God or whatever. You're getting lost on it. My challenge for you this week is to back up and look at, at, at what you believe and why you believe it. It's easy to fall into this. It's easy to say, well, I don't believe that God would have a problem with. Anybody ever do that? I don't believe God would have a problem with it, or I really want to do this, so God's going to have to deal with it. My challenge for you is to look at your heart and look at your faith and ask, do I have faith in this? Is this something I've gotten lost on? This is the map stuff. This is the big deal. If you get lost on it, like it doesn't count. The bear is still going to come into your camp and steal your stuff. You don't want that. 
We're going to close in prayer, and um, I don't know if we have a last song or not, but we're running a little long, so we could probably. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning. Give us your grace um, and help us to see your Son, um, your only Son, firstborn of all creation, just in charge of everything, your precious, beloved Son. Like, Help us to see him as our Savior and have faith and trust in that salvation, Lord. All we need to do is have faith, and all we have to do is, is, is commit to, to living that life. Um, and we know that it's, it's not the life we live. It's, it's the death of your Son that saves us. Um, Give us grace in that this week. In Jesus' name, amen.